baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Happy Sunday. It is Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer with you for another hour. If you missed any of the first hour, it's available on demand at WBEN.com. If you miss anything in this hour, again, it's available on demand at WBEN.com and also on the Odyssey app. This week, A lot of mask confusion. Have you heard that in the last two years? A lot of mask uh, confusion here in New York State. And to talk about that and more at the state level is Assemblyman Angelo Morinello. Assemblyman, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing all right. I could be doing better if the Bills had won last week. But, you know, we're we're getting through it. 13 seconds. Oh, I you know, think about it. We used to be hours away. Now we're only 13 seconds. <laughs> That's right. We're chipping away. <laughs> <laughs> now, this week there was a lot of a uh, lot of confusion when a judge uh, deemed the New York State mandate unconstitutional uh, because it didn't go through a legislative body. Uh, can you explain that to the listeners? What the judge's ruling actually meant for the state of New York? What, what the judge's ruling meant was there's only certain times that the Department of Health has the authorization under the Constitution to issue mandates. In this instance, there was no declaration of a health emergency, um, which ultimately was done after the decision by the governor, which means that the Department of Health did not have the authority to issue the mandate according to that particular decision. Now, which is interesting is there is a prior decision in Albany County that uh, that declared it uh, constitutional. So we have a conflict of laws. But w- what ultimately this means is this. There are certain rules and regulations before mandates can be placed upon the citizens of New York State. And the underlying principle is the legislature has the ability, the obligation, the duty, and the authority to pass legislation. If they recall, during the uh, Como administration, we had given powers to the governor without knowledge of the extent of COVID under the guise of $50 million being distributed to assist communities. That had expired, um, and, it, and it's questionable as to whether the legislature did, in fact, uh, rescind um, or if it was basically expired by time, and that, that, that's for another issue. So in this issue, the legislature had not been consulted. The legislature did not vote on it. Um, so now what will happen is, oh, let me go back. So once that decision was rendered, there's an appeal. And that appeal will then now go up to the higher level court and they will make a decision as to the constitutionality of whether or not or guidance as to who has the authority to issue these mandates. 
Under normal circumstances, when you appeal a decision, there is an automatic state. However, that does not apply to states um, and municipalities. So there had to be a hearing as to the stay of the order ordering the masks, and that stay was granted. So therefore, the mask mandate is in effect at this point, um, and there has not been a formal de determination as to the effectiveness, the constitutionality um, by the higher court. So when you said there's confusion, there is confusion all over on mask mandates. Confusion as to the effectiveness, confusion as to the need, confusion as to where they might be more effective than others. And these are just issues that constituents bring to me. I was at the uh, Niagara Orleans Bosey School Superintendent breakfast yesterday, and one of the issues is the confusion that was mentioned, that you mentioned in the beginning, as to who is going to have the final authority. Now, it is what has been expressed is that one uh, uh, law or policy does not fit all. And there is a move on by school superintendents to bring that decision down more to a local level, knowing their numbers, knowing their students, knowing ways to keep individuals safe. So now my expression is what has been happening in the calls I'm getting in my office. I am not expressing personal opinions, and I will state it. I am fully vaxxed. I have the booster. I carry a mask with me. If someone requests it, I'm happy to put it on. I don't challenge. I will constantly support the right of free choice. However, if there are consequences, then you have to be responsible for the consequences of your actions. Um, so I know it was a little ver verbose, but um, I sort of tried to cover it all in a short period of time. Yeah, and, and you know, speaking of the the decision, and you know, the governor does she have the right to make this? Has this been discussed uh, amongst the others in the assembly? Has there been any kind of push to try to give power to the assembly to the state senate in Albany? Is this something that's regularly talked about? No, it is not. Okay, not at least in formal uh, hearings or formal settings. Informally, the conversations have to do with the confusions. Conversations have to do with, is the governor government overreaching, overstepping their authority? Are they trampling on individual rights of individuals? Um, but what I found interesting is after that decision and the stay, the governor did declare a health emergency. Um, attempting to bypass the courts and declared that that mask mandate will stay in effect until I believe it's uh, February 24th. I'm trying to remember the exact date or February 14th. Um, but that can, that, you know, that, that can be extended or maybe not extended. Um, the only thing that has been discussed informally in the halls of Albany is Will we be seeing a bill giving the governor the powers necessary um, to be constitutionally effective to set rules? So to tell you this is going to come up next week, I wish I had a crystal ball. Could it come up next week in session? 
Absolutely. Um, so it's, we're, we're at, like I said, number one, confusion. Number two, we're at a wait and see. Yeah. Um, and a number three, is this subsiding enough that we still need to be vigilant, but vigilant just as we would be on any other health issue, vigilant on our driving, vigilant on everything we do in life. I, I believe and, and I, I support that we have intelligent individuals in New York State and that if we give them the facts, we don't need to dictate. And people will adhere to the facts. But when you con- confuse the facts, you change the facts, you change the reasoning, and then you put mandates, there's going to be resistance. So, you know, when they say there's uh, um, the, the numbers by people testing are up, okay, that's one thing. But leaving that in a vacuum doesn't give us information. So if there's a 1,000, and I'm using that as an example number, uh, they report there's a 1,000 new cases. However, the next phase should be, but 900 of them were fully vaxxed, and of the 900, only 10 had some symptoms uh, more severe. So now an, an analysis would be, number one, if you're vaxxed, you have a better chance of survival. You have a better chance of no effects as unvaxxed. And you put the information out there and let people assimilate as to what they want to see. But without giving the proper information, and by the way, it just seems that all of a sudden in the last few weeks, they are starting to give a little more information so people can make intelligent decisions. But we, I believe that local districts should have the right to impose the rules for themselves. I believe that parents need to be involved in decisions because it is their children. And the biggest problem has been the schools. Um, there was in, there was where restaurants, taverns, public uh, um, venues could have either a fully vaxxed rule, and if not, then a mask mandate. But the impl- implementation of that becomes very costly and very difficult. You know, if you saw that there were these two uh, individuals arrested for selling false COVID cards, I read this morning that they made over $1.5 million. And we did, and I want to say I did support that if you have a, if you provide counterfeit COVID cards, it is a crime, and it should be, because we're here to, to, to protect people, we're here to inform, and we're here to be straightforward and honest, and to uh, avoid the honesty and to start pushing counterfeit COVID cards does not benefit anyone. You know, you talk about the, the, the information that they're, they're putting out, and it seems like at the state level, you know, um, yeah, the constitutionality of who's involved in, in, in making the law. But as you said, the effectiveness of these cloth masks, you know, according to the CDC, according to uh, you turn on CNN, whatever doctor they're talking to today, um, the cloth masks, they, they don't really provide that protection. So it really seems like the mandate is just for show. Um, and then you bring in the hospitalizations. And as you said, they're, they're letting more information out. 
I mean, how long has it been? You know, you look in Erie County today, 45% of those that are in the hospital with COVID are there for something completely different. It just seems like the mandates aren't backing the information anymore. Well, I find it hard to believe that in the last two years, nobody had the flu. Nobody had a common cold that had been around for, you know, time in memoriam. And everything was COVID. Anybody that died, it's like, okay, you were in a car accident. Um, the car accident caused your death, but it was COVID-related because people were stressed because of COVID. I mean, let's be realistic. Let's stop trying to pull the wool over everybody's eyes, and let's be honest with people. Let's not use the COVID as a political gathering point or for political purposes. Okay, That's not the object of keeping people safe. Um, and I find it very interesting that... The COVID issue um, seems to overtake the public safety issue, okay? And they kind and, and it just seems that the dialogue seems to be downplaying public safety, downplaying uh, uh, serious violent crimes. But it's all about the COVID. Let's let's be fair and realistic to the citizens of New York State. Assemblyman, I also want uh, here at the local level. Now, I know most of your district is Niagara County, but you do dip down a little bit into Erie. Um, and, and we talked about this a, a month or so ago. Uh, you know, here in Erie County, our county executive still has a, um, a the emergency powers and the legislator has no say over that. Do you think there's a way New York State could step in and make that? N- I know there is a way. Do you think New York State would step in and take those powers away since Statewide, he's the only county executive that still holds these powers. If I knew the answer to that at this point, I would tell you who's going to win the two football games today. <laughs> okay. um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be sarcastic, please. But you don't know. Things can change on a dime. For example, let's talk about the redistricting. Well, the commission last week turned the keys in and said they couldn't get anywhere. And we have we were told that Thursday night the majority was able to obtain their new district lines. So anything can happen. Everything is on a moment's notice at times. And if you look past that and you find out, is there a reason? You know what I find ironic? Um, allegedly, this 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 uh, the COVID escaped from a lab in Wuhan in China. And this is not a finger pointing, okay? But all of our COVID tests are made in China and our masks are made in China. Um, So, you know, there's certain things that if we want public safety, let's be really sincerely analytical and make a determination as to whether or not the public safety is actually being looked at, whether or not it is actually there. Um, and, you know, the, the other disturbing thing is during the height of the COVID, our first responders, our hospital workers, our police, our firemen, they were our heroes. Nobody talked about whether they had masks or whether they had um, uh, vaccines. Now, all of a sudden, they don't seem to be the heroes anymore, and their jobs are on the line, and it, it's just – it's. It's just illogical how we are proceeding, and I think that's my biggest point. There's no logic to how we're proceeding through all of this. 
I think they're all knee-jerk reactions, um, and every day it changes. And I'm not being critical of the changes because every day we learn more. But let's be really concise and succinct into how we're approaching it, how we're getting the information out there, and how and why we want to protect uh, others. But let's be fair about it. Let's not turn our first responders and our heroes into villains. Yeah, it, it, it seems... It seems like we, we learn more and more, but at a state level, they only want to take so much of what we learn. Uh, for example, we have a doctor on um, BMAS and Beamer a lot from Johns Hopkins, uh, Dr. Amish Adalja, who, you know, very pro-vaccine. But he said, you know, for, peop- for most people, a booster shot is not going to give any more protection or the heightened protection um, than you do with your first two doses, yet at a state level, we're now being told for certain jobs to go back to certain schools, you need a booster shot. Uh, when, when do you think that comes to a stop? Um, after the midterms. Yeah. All right. That's my opinion. I'm giving you my opinion, okay? I may get criticized for my opinion, but when you ask me, I'm going to be honest with you. I think they'll all end after the midterms. Assemblyman, always uh, always great talking with you, and I appreciate you taking some time out of your uh, Sunday to talk with me. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity, and, uh, you know, I think that we, with the Bills, um, I'm very proud. I think it's a shame that Josh Allen was snubbed, and I'm glad he's not going to the Pro Bowl. Oh. Um, I think he's one of the top quarterbacks. And what we witnessed last week uh, between he and Mahomes – was one of the best football games in the history of football. And I don't think there'll be a, a, a Super Bowl of that caliber with uh, the young guns firing. So we have a lot to be proud of in Buffalo. A lot to I like what you said at the beginning. We're just chipping away. We were hours away, now 13 seconds away. Hopefully next year we're talking about Super Bowl Sunday. That is correct. Thank you, Joe. Hey, listen, have a great day, and I always appreciate this. Take care. Thank you. You too. You too. Uh, Assemblyman Angelo Morinello, always good to catch up with him. When we come back, we will catch up with our friend Dave Leventhal about everything going on in D.C. That's after news with Neil McManus here on News Radio 930 WBE. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome back. Finally, finally, final segment here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Hope everyone's having a great Sunday morning. Good start to uh, the week or end of the week, however you view Sunday. Our next guest is Buffalo's own Dave Leventhal from the from the Business Insider, Dave, good Sunday morning. And a good Sunday morning to you, Joe. It's a it's a tough one. It's a it's a it's a tough Sunday morning uh, because you know it's a Sunday morning that either of us would like to be having, but here we are, are all the same uh, survivors as always. Uh, we, the story of Buffalo. We went from uh, <laughs> we went from not having a hard line this week because of tailgating to 
Here we are, Dave. But you know, no one I'd rather spend the uh, last segment with than you. And I, uh, I'm happy you're on board. And let's talk about. I mean, I don't know how you you tell what's the big story, the top story, but uh, the story that you know I, I think might have been shocking to some, and that is the retirement of Stephen Breyer, uh, which was announced a few days ago. And one heck of a story it was here in Washington D.C. It wasn't shocking, um, and, and this may seem idiosyncratic, but uh, all the same, it, it may have not been shocking uh, at all to those on the left, uh, progressives, who very quietly, but uh, all the same, have been clamoring for Justice Breyer to step down. Uh, their, the fear on their part uh, was that Justice Breyer, who's in his early 80s, uh, would stay on for a significant period of time going forward, and that the Democrats would lose the Senate in 2022, which would make it that much more difficult for Joe Biden to nominate a, a, a Democrat, a liberal, uh, to the Supreme Court when he had the opportunity, whenever the case may be, that Breyer stepped down. So this is a big sigh of relief. Uh, in fact, one of my colleagues published a story last year that uh, detailed how many of Breyer's clerks, his former uh, you know, closest associates uh, as the Supreme Court justice, were, were actually encouraging him to step down so that there could be a transition of power and get somebody in there who would be uh, definitely uh, younger and uh, potentially serving for decades to come that would be somebody that would be handpicked by Joe Biden. And we talked about this uh, at 1030 with Professor Peter Iacobucci. He gave us uh, his list. Um, what is the uh, general thought in D.C. of who's going to take that chair? Well, first and foremost, uh, it is almost certainly going to be an African-American woman. This is a campaign promise that Joe Biden made long before he became president. It's something that he has stuck to lately and confirmed, reconfirmed. And, and so there's a short list of, of maybe four or five um, potential judges who are serving either in state or federal courts uh, who are on the short list. First on the short list, I would have to say, would be uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who is uh, right here in Washington, D.C., uh, somebody who had been elevated uh, just in the past year to uh, federal appellate court from district court. So her star is definitely shining bright, and so she's going to appear on any short list. Um, Leandra Kruger, and mind you, these are not household names, but definitely people who are very prominent in the legal world. Leandra Kruger, she's a state Supreme uh, Court justice in California, and uh, she also, too, definite rising star. Uh, you have Michelle Childs, uh, who's a federal judge in South Carolina. Wilhelmina Wright, uh, who's a judge in Minnesota. These are names that uh, I, I would expect, uh, you know, will we'll be in the conversation until ultimately Joe Biden goes forward and makes his nomination. Now, there are no guarantees here. We, we know from history and recent history, too, Joe, that sometimes presidents will nominate Supreme Court uh, uh, justices and the Senate will have other ideas, or even nominations can be withdrawn by the person who's nominated. Just think back to Harriet Myers and George W. Bush and uh, how that, that all flamed out. If you're of a certain age, you might remember Robert Bork uh, back in the 80s. So there are definitely uh, historical parallels here to be drawn, but no indication that this is going to be, uh, you know, a, a highly, highly, highly tenuous uh, pick. But Republicans are definitely going to have uh, major concerns, and we'll air them accordingly once the nomination gets made, almost certainly. Uh, do you think there will be any Republican senators that will vote to approve this? Has that been discussed? Again, with no name, I know that's more uh, guesswork at this point, but has that been discussed? You know, your Mitt Romneys or maybe your more moderate Republicans going along with the vote? 
There's always that possibility. And with, with something like this, uh, it will oftentimes depend on the person. It will depend on the nomination hearing and the actual process leading up to that hearing. And that you could have somebody nominated uh, who is very controversial and is not going to get that kind of support. You may have somebody else who, even though a Republican in this case is not crazy about the fact that uh, this person uh, probably is going to, to lean much more to the left uh, than to the right, is still going to be able to take a look at that nominee and say, well, all right, you know, this is the a Democratic president's choice here, and I can either, you know, go with it or not go with it if the person is qualified, if, uh, if the person is uh, going to be the best type of nominee that one could expect Joe Biden to make. They, they may very well do so. So take a look at Mitt Romney. Take a look at Susan Collins, senator in, in Maine. Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. Those would be uh, the, the types of senators who you might expect would potentially entertain a Joe Biden nominee of any sort more than um, some more uh, hardcore rock-ribbed conservatives within the Senate right now. Also, we heard uh, this week, we learned this week, speaking of uh, the, well, it would be the Congress, that Nancy Pelosi uh, will not retire, as she previously stated, and she will run for another term. Uh, Dave, obviously, she'll win if she runs again. Uh, Did this come as a surprise to people since she did say that this was going to be her last term? Well, and and she said definitively that uh, she would step down as speaker. There there had always been a little bit of a kind of a squishy question as to whether she would still run. Not surprising. uh, You know, in the end, uh, she is the Speaker of the House. And there is a distinct possibility, Joe, that she could run. She could win. And if she runs, she will win. And then she could step down after the fact and kind of handpick a successor uh, to to fill the seat that she had just won. We only have to go back to Newt Gingrich in the late 90s to to see a a kind of a a very, very similar situation where he did just that. Uh, He was uh, he was speaker and uh, he, he decided that he was going to step away. And he did so right after he had won an election. So there's no telling exactly what Nancy Pelosi is going to do. But at least in the meantime, meantime for the midterms, she is running. And and what does that get her? Well, it definitely gets her uh, the the platform during the election of being the Speaker of the House. She's one of the most successful fundraisers uh, in in the history, not only of Democratic politics, but among Democrats and Republicans. Uh, She's incredibly good uh, in this realm, and she can cause uh, cause money to rain from the sky for, for liberals. So as a result, uh, those are two kind of real contributing factors to, to this decision, and we'll see what happens now, where it will get really, really sticky very, very quickly, is that the Democrats were to retain the U.S. House, which is far from a foregone conclusion. If anything, the odds are on Republicans winning and taking control of the House. But if Nancy Pelosi was somehow able to uh, to, to muster her troops and retain the House, would she truly step away from being the Speaker of the House? Would she resign at that point? Uh, would she become a rank-and-file member of Congress after having been House Speaker and the leader for years and years and years? That seems highly unlikely, given who, who we're talking about here, Joe. Also, speaking of keeping it in, in Congress, you had an interesting story a few days ago uh, about an Indiana representative that lied about how much he was worth. Yeah, so uh, not, again, a household name here, but uh, uh, Representative Frank Moran of Indiana, a Democrat, uh, definitely think uh, we we have no evidence to say that he lied, but he certainly misrepresented his personal finances on a 
certified federal document. Uh, we track these things very, very closely here at Insider and basically inflated his wealth into the tens of millions of dollars in this public disclosure, uh, when in reality he is worth uh, closer to uh, to nothing. Actually, when you subtract his liabilities from his assets, uh, he's in the red. So this is part of an ongoing project uh, that we've been working on called Conflicted Congress, where we're really taking a, a very, very close look at the personal finances of lawmakers on the left and the right, and uh, in this situation, he basically said, ah, it was a data entry error. I'm very, very sorry. He didn't explain to us, uh, even though we asked how it happened, what he's going to do to fix it in the future and make sure that it doesn't happen again. But, uh, yeah, he was he went from being one of the richest members of Congress, at least on paper, to being uh, one of the least wealthy members of Congress uh, on paper. And uh, that's... Uh, Kind of interesting, because the whole point of this is to be transparent with the public and to defend against potential conflicts of interest. And it also, too, really kind of underscores uh, just the lack of uh, uh, of oversight that Congress has uh, on this type of activity and these types of documents. They are not audited. Uh, They are obviously not checked very well because this public record uh, persisted for months and months and months until basically we uh, raised the red flag on it. Another again, keeping it in the uh, in the Capitol building there, Dave. We um, Mitt Romney raising money for Liz Cheney. Something else that you, you spoke of this week, and it, 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 the question has to be asked: Is there this segment of the Republican Party, uh, a more moderate segment, is this gaining any kind of steam uh, with Liz Cheney getting Mitt Romney again? You know, over the last five years, I think they've been viewed to have the same uh, views when it comes to who's representing the party. Is that faction of the party, that segment of the party, gaining steam uh, going into the midterms? If if it's gaining steam, it's a a very, very uh, small amount of steam among a a very, very uh, small engine, if you will, of of Republicans who I think you can objectively call uh, anti-Trump Republicans. So Donald Trump would call them rhinos. Uh, He would say that they don't deserve to be in the Republican Party. He has made it very, very clear, Donald Trump, that is uh, how he feels about people such as Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney. But there's definitely some, I will scratch your back if you scratch mine going on with the Mitt Romneys and the Liz Cheneys and the Adam Kinzingers of the world uh, who are remain Republicans, want to stay Republicans and feel like the Republican Party in their estimation has uh, kind of lost uh, its way and uh, are, are still going to go forward and remain Republicans while criticizing many, many Republicans who support the former president. So as a result, yeah, not surprised at all that there's a fundraising going on. They're going to support each other. Uh, they continue to do so. And their argument is, hey, we, we're conservative. We are, we are Republicans. We are going to 95 to 100 percent of the time uh, vote along the lines of uh, standard Republican orthodoxy. We are socially conservative. We are fiscally conservative. And hey, Liz Cheney, no matter what you think of her, if you look at her voting record, that, that's just a fact. It is. She just happens to think that Donald Trump is uh, a, a, a bad person and was a bad president and should not run for president again. And it comes at a time where um, some of our reporters were have been covering this weekend the uh, National Governors Association meeting, which is taking place here and around Washington, D.C. And uh, Asa Hutchinson, who's the governor of Arkansas, he is a Republican. He is a leader of this very, very powerful association of governors. Uh, he told us that Donald Trump should not run for president in 2024. So there, there are some interesting crosses basically say that even though Donald Trump uh, looms large over the Republican Party and by all measures 
is absolutely the leader of the Republican Party, that they are either reluctant to have him run in 2024 or don't want to see him run in 2024 at all, particularly at a time when Republicans are trying to win the midterms and they're trying to win the House and they're trying to win the Senate. And it's got a pretty darn good chance of doing one, the other, or both, and really don't want Donald Trump uh, mucking with that uh, any more than he has to, at least in, in their opinion. Any idea how that Wyoming uh, election is panning out? Does Liz Cheney have a chance to stay in Congress? Yeah, she definitely does. And uh, it's going to be a tough primary. Uh, if she wins the primary, she's almost certain to win the general election. But people in Wyoming, they, they like her. Uh, by and large, the polls are not as good as they used to be for her. And Wyoming's a funny state. It's a, it's a state where you actually have more senators than you do House representatives because the population is so small. They only have one district. So everyone in Wyoming gets to vote or not vote for Liz Cheney if she makes a general election. And uh, it's a it's a pretty red state. So as a result, uh, the majority of voters are going to have their opportunity to cast their first ballots for or against Liz Cheney in the primary, which is uh, coming up in a couple of months here. It is interesting. You mentioned, you know, voting record uh, because you hear Liz Cheney talk and Elise Stefanik talk. You would think Elise Stefanik voted with the president more than Liz Cheney, but actually it's reverse. As you mentioned, Liz Cheney voted with President Trump over 90 percent of the time, uh, Elise Stefanik only 77 percent of the time. Very interesting when you look into those numbers of um, the, each is voting record because it's a little different than how they speak publicly about the, uh, the former president. You, you bring up a really good point, and, and this kind of underscores a, sort of a, a philosophical element to this. Uh, as a voter, as an American, if you're a Republican, do you care more about what a person does in terms of their actions, in terms of their voting, the support of a, a certain party agenda, and and there you go. Liz Cheney does that more, and in fact, does it does it more, or even a lot more, than other Republicans who uh, are very supportive of Donald Trump. So, is it more important to you that Liz Cheney votes the way that Republicans say that Republicans should vote, or or the way that a Republican should vote in line with what Donald Trump thinks, uh, or is it more important for them to, even if they don't quite vote in that way as much? to very publicly um, be willing to pronounce their loyalty to Donald Trump. Um, you know, there's no right answer to that question, but it's a, it's a question that I think is underappreciated sometimes uh, because you do have uh, these critics of Donald Trump within the Republican Party who still, when it comes to their voting record and, and their philosophical takes on all of the issues of the day, domestic policy, foreign policy, uh, everything under the sun, they're, they're actually not that far away uh, or even far away from all uh, at all from where Donald Trump stands on those issues. Now, you and I have talked about, you know, uh, going into the midterms. There's certain uh, the, uh, certain people running for uh, Congress or Senate that, you know, they want a distance or they don't really. Glenn Youngkin uh, didn't really have Trump on the campaign trail. Are we starting to see this with current President Joe Biden? Because in Georgia a few weeks ago, he went there. Stacey Abrams was not with him. Uh, he went to Pittsburgh on Friday, and there were two representatives, two people running for office that uh, said that they had a schedule conflict and weren't seen with them. Is this a coincidence, or are we going to see people in tight districts not associating themselves with Joe Biden, as we are seeing those in tight districts not associate themselves with Donald Trump? I, I think you're going to see some of the latter, without question. Now, that's not always going to be the case. Joe Biden remains 
very popular within certain segments of the country and very, very blue areas. But overall, Joe Biden is not doing well in terms of the popularity contest uh, that is ever present in, in politics. Uh, his approval ratings are much lower than uh, than he certainly would like and in what we would expect from a president of any sort, Democrat or Republican, at this stage in his first term, about a year in. So, yeah, Joe Biden is, uh, when he's traveling around, as he did uh, just a couple of days ago when he went to Pittsburgh to tout uh, the infrastructure package on a day when a bridge literally collapsed uh, in Pittsburgh, you're going to see a lot of official events like that where Joe Biden is uh, not going to be directly campaigning for this member of the House or for this Senate candidate, uh, but it's going to be campaigning for the broader Democratic agenda, the broader Biden agenda. Uh, so expect more of that, at least for now. Now, that could change, and politics change, and his fortunes could change, and his poll numbers could go up. But that's not the case here on uh, January 30th of uh, 2022. So definitely no Democrat wants to have uh, a liability or an albatross hanging around their neck, even if that comes in the form of the President of the United States, who at this moment is not the most popular guy in the world, that's for sure. Dave, what do you got your eye on uh, going into this week in Washington, D.C.? Well, I mean, there's a few things. You, you said at the top of the, the segment uh, that, that there's a whole bunch of things. Nothing is really necessarily being the priority this week, but I'll tick off a couple of things for you, Joe. Number one, keep an eye on foreign policy. This is always a sleeper issue it's so often with so many different domestic concerns. We have COVID, we have the economy, we have inflation, and, and you know, we have jobs, we have infrastructure. But uh, the situation in Ukraine with Russia very problematic, very turbulent, uh, and you, you, we have a whole bunch of uh, allies, U.S. allies, who really are not coalescing on exactly the severity of, of this, the possibility of an invasion by Russia into Ukraine, and, and what would even happen if that would take the place, or that would take place. I should note, that, and this didn't get a lot of coverage, uh, that the Senate, in kind of a surprisingly bipartisan fashion, is moving forward with a, a package, a potential bill that would, uh, in essence, punish Russia in a major way if something was to happen militarily where they do invade. So keep an eye on that. North Korea, they, they fired uh, one of the long, longest range of missiles that they've fired uh, just uh, very recently, uh, certainly since Joe Biden had become president. So they're being provocative in a way that North Korea loves to be. That's going to be a concern. And then we have the Olympics coming up in China, which are going to be a wildly different kind of Olympics than we had in China uh, about 14 years ago when China hosted. Uh, it will be done in a bubble. The United States has uh, really uh, tapped down, tamped down their uh, participation, at least in terms of uh, diplomatic representation. So that really underscores just the, uh, the very high tensions between China in the United States. Um, and then I should note, too, that I mentioned the uh, Governor's Association meeting taking place uh, in Virginia and Washington, D.C. Uh, this weekend. Joe Biden is scheduled to appear at a dinner there, and uh, governors all across the country, so key at this time, uh, especially with uh, with COVID being uh, the storyline, continuing storyline that it, it is, it's going to be an opportunity for him to talk directly to those governors who, in essence, have 50 different ways of approaching uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's all over the map. As we've talked about many, many times, governors have a great deal of power in the situation. And what might be happening in New York State could be wildly different than what's happening in New Mexico or New Jersey and everywhere in between. So look for Biden to, uh, to, to talk about that tonight in addition to the economy. 
Wow, Dave. I, I, do you take any time off? I mean, there is so much going on. My head is literally literally spinning. Oh, man. T- took a little time off uh, a, a week ago today to go mm. fall down a hole and, uh, and, and cry for a while. So uh, ho- hopefully we're, we're uh, you know, all going to get through this together, Joe, uh, at least as far as the Buffalo Bills are concerned. Now, will you still watch football today? I'm going to have to. I mean, if, if you're a football fan, you, you, you take the good with the bad. And uh, I'm already thinking forward to, uh, to, to next season. S- September is, uh, is what really matters. Do you have a rooting interest in these four games? Are these two games? That, that, that this, is, uh, this is tough. I mean, since, uh, you know, since Andy Dalton is, uh, is maybe the third or fourth uh, most popular quarterback uh, in, in Buffalo Bills history uh, by virtue of uh, him getting us into the playoffs for, for the first time in 17 years a few years ago, I, I suppose I'm going to have to, to root for the Bengals here today. There it is. You know, I, I, I see positives of both, right? The Bengals win. That's a fan base that we can relate to. And then if the Chiefs win then we know the first game of next season will be Buffalo, Kansas City. Go Bengals. There it is. Dave, always good talking with you, and I look forward to talking with you again. Also look forward to uh, you on Tuesday mornings with uh, Susan Rose and Brian Mazarowski. We'll talk then. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend, Buffalo. That is Dave Leventhal from Business Insider. And as I said, you can catch him at 6.50 Tuesday morning with Susan Rose and Brian Mazarowski. All right. Well, that is all for today's Hardline. I thank you for joining me. I thank our guest, Joe Pinion, Peter Iacobucci, Assemblyman Angelo Morinello, and Dave Leventhal. If you missed any of the show, it'll be available on demand and at WBEN.com. Meet the Press is next after this break on WBEN Buffalo. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 